I've started to focus when I was younger, I had a set of goals, you know, I had like a, a framework, there's pillars, there's my vision statement of myself. And I was very hardcore about it. I was kind of like the, this is somewhat of a dated example, but like Alex P. Keaton from Family Ties, you know, I was very kind of, very kind of like regimented and focused and, you know, what's my epitaph and, you know, press release for myself. I backed off that over time and I'm tying this back to what you said is there's a ton of things that I do around process goals and I sh the special ops guys I bet you I bet if you watch what they did every day there's a certain set of things that are important to what they do every day they may vary it a little bit but it's not like they're gonna start doing welcome to the Jeff Larson show where I interview innovators and leaders today on the show I'm excited to have Matt Hewlett Matt thanks for doing this hey it's great to be here so why don't I read a little bit of a bio and then you can tell me about any of the high points I missed. Does that work? Sounds good. Okay. Matt Hewlett has driven more than $2 billion in value creation as four-time public company CEO and president and two-time private company CEO. He's a seasoned technology executive with more than 30 years of experience building and leading world-class SaaS and consumer companies. He's had multiple turnaround successes in the public and private sectors, including Rosetta Stone, Real Networks, and Expedia. He is regularly featured in technology and business podcasts and media outlets such as Recode Forbes Entrepreneur. Matt lives in Seattle with his wife, Anne, CEO of Rock Grace and their three children. And he's the CEO of a great new book, Unlock. What did I miss? I think the only thing you missed is my dog, Harry, who's somewhere around here. By the way, great book. I just finished it last week. When did it come out? Middle of May. Okay. I did the Audible and highly recommend everybody else going and buying their own copy on Audible like I did. So can you talk about... Can you talk about this idea of, you know, it was a memoir, it was going to be a business book, then you have in the stories and, and how you decided what format to kind of settle on for the book? Yeah, thank you for listening to it. And hopefully we've had some technical problems. Those are all cleared up because the, I, I must say, first, I'll start off with the the audio book was up bare to record. If you ever decide to write a book, that's actually not the hardest part of it. Doing the recording was, to me, mentally challenging. It wasn't something that was natural. I was in my son's basement that was like 60 degrees. To keep the energy going, to record perfectly was very, very difficult. So thank you so much for being maybe the only person that's listened to the audiobook. So I really appreciate it. The, the theory on the book when I started writing it, one was I had a window of time during the pandemic where I was coming off my term at Rosetta Stone. We had just sold the company, took it private. It was a publicly traded company. And I had about three months to kind of wind the business down. And I thought, this is an opportunity. I'll never have another one like this where I can knock off a bucket list item that's relatively difficult. Not like, you know, a marathon or half marathon, with which I, which I do on occasion. Let's get the book done. And so as I started thinking about the book, I thought about what was the kind of book that I would want to write if I was like 30 years younger. And so for most of my career, I've been a turnaround or transformation person. And that's kind of the theme throughout my career. And I thought, you know, really the way I approach these companies, whether these turnarounds or something's usually wrong, hasn't been written about. So I wanted to make it very approachable by thinking about what's the easiest thing that a business person or general business leader can think about. And I thought about the concept of a FICO score and how would I score my business like I would my own credit. And so that kind of was in the back of my mind. And then I kind of filled in the blanks of what heuristic would I create in the FICO score for your business to create something that's very readable and enjoyable. And all along the way, I started weaving in stories from my own career as well as others. So I thought it was interesting and I like 
kind of the articulation, like like breaking it down and looking at these things like timing and the competition. And and I feel like it's helpful in trying to become objective. You know, I, I sat there looking at our businesses going like, oh, yeah, how are we on timing? Oh, what is, you know, do we have anything special? You know, like the Jeff Bezos quote, your margin is my business opportunity and thinking like, oh, am I, you know, am I vulnerable there? Like what, what should I be thinking about? So I feel like it's kind of like a, a toolbox. You know, well, I really appreciate it. Yeah, there's there's five variables. You score them. There's a free survey on my site. And I didn't really write the book to make any money. As you know, you don't write a book to make money. I really tried to scale my empathy for business leaders because everyone always says, do you have 15 minutes? Just do you, have you heard this on LinkedIn ever? Do you have 15 minutes? Your answer is <laughs> probably no, right? So for anyone really out there that wanted to change their position in their business, I really wanted to create something that was approachable and practical, practical and actually a little bit fun. I have a little bit of a quirky sense of humor, but I tried to add that in there. Well, I think it's great. I have a whole bunch of questions. Let me, and they'll relate to the book, but I want to start with with just some. So, you know, think about becoming the CEO at Rosetta Stone or the head of the big cheese at Expedia, things like this. What's that process like for people who have never been through it? Are you getting, are you getting reached out to by headhunters? Was it through the network, through your personal network? Or how do these, will you come help us turn around our company offers come in? Well, early in your career, you don't know anything and um, ignorance is bliss, right? And there's a lot of serendipity. I always tell anyone who's starting their career out, worry less about your title, worry more about who your manager is and the kind of business that you're working on and just make yourself useful and show some initiative. Over time, you start collecting a series of skills and a network. And that tends to reinforce itself. So you better pick your skills and your network wisely because they tend to snowball. You become kind of a character actor of what you of, of what you're known for. And though I think the moment where people started calling me for roles which were more turnaround oriented came after my first stint at being kind of a young entrepreneur, president, executive. And this was a business called Adam Shockwave, where we raised a lot of money. It was basically a short form entertainment company. Think pre-YouTube. So entertainment on the web. That was a big deal at the time. No one was doing it. We were doing it. And the business went through the, the transition like everything else did around the Web 1.0 bubble where everything burst. Businesses didn't have strong unit economics. And we had to create a business. One of our investors was Mike Moritz of Sequoia Capital, who's a very well-known investor, probably one of the best investors of all time in terms of venture capital. And he wrote the slide deck called Rest in Peace. And basically, it was a kind of a rubric for how to survive through nuclear winter in businesses when your business is going through really rough times and some serious headwinds. And so I lived through that as he was my board member. My business was being severely hampered. And I had to come up with a way through that process, how to make this company survive through that. And I had to learn on the job and it was brutal. And I was in my late 20s. We'd raise all this money. Everyone else in San Francisco had left like the, you know, pets.com. Like we looked at their office the day after everyone was laid off. You could see dust on the chairs. It was, it was almost like God made judgment on everybody. It was just really, really horrible. And that really reinforced for me for the first time, how you need to be thoughtful about your business planning and your strategic planning. Because prior to that, money was easy. And this is a lesson for entrepreneurs now that are going through a difficult time. Money was easy. You weren't looking at your unit economics. And that really reinforced. And so over time, I became the, the person who's known for taking on these gnarly jobs, these difficult assignments, these transformations, turnarounds. And so I always get those calls. No matter what I do, it's kind of like Mikey, you know, the kick cereal spokesperson. He'll eat anything. 
thing. I keep getting his calls like, well, Matt will take that gnarly job. And so it just reinforces over time. Yeah. Let's talk about Expedia for a minute. How big were they at the time you came in? What what was the pitch when they were trying to get you to come in? And and what was it like when you left? Yeah, I can't remember the gross bookings number, but it was it was probably over 10 billion with a B. It was a little bit after they went IPO. Rich Barton, who that, at that point was the CEO, who had successfully spun the business out of Microsoft. Most folks don't know that Microsoft owned Expedia. Rich Barton, who's now the CEO of Zillow, the the home tech real estate tech site and business. He recruited me. He was on a board. He was the board member at Adam Shockwave. We got to know each other. He called me. It was right after September 11th. I remember that distinctly. Very tough time for the country and the world. And Rich was calling me about a reference on somebody. And then he asked what, what, what I was doing. I said, well, you know, it was kind of a tough time getting the business transformed and reduced so it could survive. And he basically, and this is just kind of like, Rich, get off your and let's get to work. And travel would be a great place to contribute because if you're not going to travel, then why, why do we live? And he really convinced me to come to the business and create really a role for me as an entrepreneur inside a larger company. And so my, my job day one was to figure out how to do business travel at Expedia. And this is right after 9-11. Right after 9-11. Yeah. Where literally, you know, you look up in the sky, there's no planes. And I wasn't thinking about that would be the best counter cyclical, counterfactual way to start in the e-commerce business for travel. But it absolutely was. But to us, it felt more like a mission. It felt like we were more of a mission than, you know, hey, we're going to crush a revenue, even a number. It felt very important to be in this business. And then as the corporate travel guy, very important to take care of your corporate travelers, because this is not just a a passenger. This is someone's life and their loved ones want to make sure this person's safe. So it took on a deeper meaning than you would have thought. Interesting. And and again, how long were you at Expedia? Like five years. And and obviously left it a little different than you found it. Can you talk about kind of where it got to? Yeah, I was, you know, I think the great thing about Expedia and I don't have an MBA. I think I earned my MBA at Expedia through the incredible team that Rich built. It was a team built on meritocracy. It was a team built on ideas. And that culture around, you know, the best idea, no matter where it is in the organization rules and the, and actually the performance orientation had this dual combination of exemplary business results, but really intellectually stimulating conversations. It felt like it was almost scholastic. So when I started, there was a small effort to do business travel. We tried a couple of things. And by the time I left, my business was about a billion dollars in gross bookings. And I was in my late twenties, early thirties. And at that point I thought, well, that's normal. And you know, it's not normal. Later you find out as you kind of do startups, it's, it's not normal to do that. But that was kind of the culture that really Rich and the team said is, you know, anything's possible. BHAGs, you know, the Jim Collins, big, hairy, audacious goals. Those were like, you know, sacrosanct. I felt like I wore a BHAG tattoo on my arm. I mean, and it felt normal. And so it really did a great, it really set a set of principles and a rubric for how to think big and how to build great teams for me. So I would love to talk about that for one second. You think about how many people, like ever since we were a little kid, you get told you can do anything and, you know, believe in big dreams and set big goals and stuff like this. And then so often for like crazy entrepreneurs who want to go do stuff, once you get into your 20s and you go to start attempting that, everybody around you says, oh, that's not too safe. Are you sure? Maybe you should get a safe job and think about that later. What, what kind of a degree are you going to end up with? You know, like then like then everybody's actions start telling you, oh, we didn't mean that. We, we were just saying that when you were a kid, right? <laughs> yeah. And uh, <laughs> And so thinking about this idea of like genuinely growing a business unit over a 
billion dollar revenue. I mean, there's so many entrepreneurs today that they would like to get to a level like that. And there's so many people around them that if they say that on their outside voice, other people roll their eyes like, oh, are you going to go to the NBA as well? You know, as someone who actually did it, can you talk about this idea of like, conviction and like getting to a place of belief where you actually believe that's possible? Because I imagine nobody accomplishes it that doesn't think it's possible, like feel it in the bones instead of just say it on the outside voice. Do you have any thoughts about that? I do. And, you know, I don't want to sound like I'm a really bad Hallmark card, but there's a lot of these things, these memes you've read before around, you know, if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room, which I believe, or creating an environment of success and surrounding yourself with other like-minded people that are successful does an amazing amount for you. And I learned that early on when I was in cross country and track, my track coach was actually the roommate of legendary runner, Steve Prefontaine. And really? Create, yeah. I mean, I'm, I tell these stories and people think certainly you're embellishing. I wish I was. And the culture that great coaches and mentors create a success environment that's welcoming, it's competitive and also teamwork based is transcendent to how you achieve most of these these things because it feels normal. If you're in the wrong room and someone says, you know, look, you know, I think I could hit a billion dollars in three years and their naysayers bring you down, it does wear on you over a while. Your environment does condition you and creates a ceiling around your limitations. But if you create an environment where that's normal or it could be actually something that could be obtained, it generally can happen. And even if it doesn't happen, at least you're shooting for a big goal. And what's the worst thing that's going to happen? It doesn't work. So, you know, what's the fear of this? So I learned that early on and I get more comfortable as I'm older, understanding what I'm good at, what I like to do and what I say no to and what I say yes to. But I would say, you know, in a long-winded way, the environment does condition you for a performance culture. And if you can kind of create that environment around your personal life and your business life, you start learning very quickly that your own personal limitations are just that. And you've created your own ceiling. So that's my perspective. I don't know what your perspective is, but that's what I've experienced. No, I love that. The episode I recorded this morning was with two guys who made it to the, the classified levels of special ops, like the literal Michael Jordans of special ops, which are already the pro athletes of the military, right? Yeah. And the one has been so great helping our charity child rescue over the years. And, you know, I'll buy you another, I'm thinking about another guy from the, the army special mission unit. Our fund is doing these, we're trying to do these unique Airbnbs. And so we're actually doing one on his property in partnership with him at Puget Sound across kind of north of Olympia up by Shelton. Okay. Okay. Yep. And, and what's funny is like the little boy, I mean, so wants to be Jason Bourne thinks these guys walk on water. Right. And like when you go shooting with him, he's got 25 acres and I'm like, hey, let's do a shooting class. Right. And right. you spend enough years hanging out with these guys and they actually show you what they do. And over time, you think like being able to like walk quickly and hit dead center every time as you're like not quite running, you're like speed walking and you go bing, 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 bing. And every shot hits every time over and over and over. You start to think like, oh, that's how it's done. That's what you do. Like, I know that's not the exact example, but it's like these guys who are literally like the actual number one hostage rescue unit, counterterrorism unit in the world across anybody's military, right? And it's like, it's almost like that osmosis thing of enough time with them. You're like, oh, so that's how it's done. So that, that's how you do it, you know? And I don't know yeah. if you think that is similar or not. I, I, I do. And also, I think you touched on something that's important to mention around goal attainment is... 
I've started to focus when I was younger, I had a set of goals, you know, I had like a, a framework, there's pillars, there's my vision statement of myself. And I was very hardcore about it. I was kind of like the, this is somewhat of a dated example, but like Alex P. Keaton from Family Ties, you know, I was very kind of, very kind of like regimented and focused and, you know, what's my epitaph and, you know, press release for myself. I backed off that over time and I'm tying this back to what you said is there's a ton of things that I do around process goals. And I sh the special ops guys, I bet you, I bet if you watch what they did every day, there's a certain set of things that are important to what they do every day. They may vary it a little bit, but it's not like they're going to start doing an orthogonal set of things that don't really tie to what they want to do. And I learned over time that the, and there's tons of books on habits, but the things that I do on a regular basis compound to where I want to go. And it's just up to me to decide where I focus my time. And I'm very conscious and my wife and I are very conscious of where we spend our time. We do project reviews and quarterly business reviews on ourselves, but not from a perspective of did we hit this goal or not is are we spending the time on a daily basis compounding to where we want to go? I guess I'd tie that to the six success environment. You mentioned Expedia. There was the same things we did every day, the rhythm of the business and there was insights and we'd, we'd actually hire competitors and we'd do like a bare bull class on a thesis. And then we bring a competitor in at the end of that week. And the, the big awesome reveal was who was right and who was wrong and back to process goals. So for us, at Expedia, when I watched this, these titans that, that I stood on the shoulders of, it was this culture of success and the process goals. And I think it's a little bit of what you experience with these special ops people. Yeah, you know, you are right about their goals. You know, in the military, there's lots of like, get up at this time, we're going to go work. You know, you got PT here and you do this, whatever. When you get into the into the joints, like into JSOC, like above special ops into the classified levels, they actually don't have that anymore. Like, really? Yeah. Hmm. Like the guy, the the former unit guy who used to run Child Rescue, Peter Donovan, we've had him on the show. Great, great friend. Good guy. You know, he'd tell me like, oh yeah, when you get there, there's no PT. Like you are expected to be in charge of your own PT. Like if the president is going to send you on a no fail mission to, to sell, you know, go after a nuclear bomb or stuff like this, like we're like, we need people who are in charge of their own routine. And like, there wasn't range time. Like you look at like an average cop in America, they get one box of shells, 200, you know, they'll maybe shoot 200 rounds, couple boxes of shells, right? 200 rounds in a year. Peter shot a thousand rounds a day, what? but he wasn't told to. Like it was the expectation. Like, yes. are you on your A game? Like he, I, I think on the episode, he talks about being on the mission to, to save that American journalist that the Taliban was, that ISIS was, or sorry, Al-Qaeda was welding into the floor, like and putting the fridge over. So they they cut it off, feed her once a day, and then weld it back on and put the fridge over it so that it'd be harder for people to figure out where she was. He was on that mission. Oh, I have to listen to this episode. I did. And, and like, like... <laughs> There's so many folks in the military where life is on the line. But in those situations, like you're so close. I mean, they're the only unit that fights more with their handgun than with a with a rifle because they're in and around corners and inside all the stuff. But it's just like, like he figures he shot a million rounds in his career and he's only like 39 now. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Oh, my God. Right. And he's been out for a couple of years. <laughs> right. 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 Uh, like a literal million, not like a height, not like a, not, not a million, like literally one million. Right. Yeah. And you're going like, wow, that is a level of intensity that I don't think most people expect. But to your point of like, they know their stuff, they're looking for the compound interest and they've got their thing. And, you know, as I read your book, I feel like your million rounds is this analysis where you're going like timing, how big is the market? Like you lay out these things in the book and I just get the sense that you've done that so much 
even when you weren't told to, that you're constantly evaluating your own company, your competitors' companies, what you're going to do next. Yeah. Is that is that a fair assumption? It's a fair assumption. I start the book out with the reference of the 2006 movie Taken by Liam Neeson. With I'm a man with a particular set of skills, and I start and I used to hear that in my head all the time. I'm like, why do I always hear this in my head? Because I'm not brought into pre situations, but I've seen so much repetition on pattern recognition on problems. I can kind of diagnose things very quickly in 90 days, very quickly. Now, executing takes a long time and it takes patience and, and my own version of a Kevlar jacket because there's lots of expectations from other people. But as long as I kind of stay in the zone and just take it back to not, not to overuse, I, I'm not suggesting my skill sets anywhere near a special ops person, but if I'm a special ops person in business, there's just a set of things I know how to do, whether I write them down or not, that are muscle memory. And I'll just go and do those things. As long as I stay focused on those things, they'll get done. It's the moment where I decide to work on things that I don't want to do. Maybe it's something that's like financially beneficial. That's something I don't really care about. The, you know, there's moments in time where you're not really focused on the mission. You're focused on something else. Those are the moments where you're not really kind of a, your special ops best, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it does. Can you talk to us about what that process looked like when you went over to Rosetta Stone? You know, public company, well-known, but uh, I understand they're still on CD-ROMs in like, was it 2017? When did you go over there? Yeah, 2000, like end of 2017. It was kind of, I guess, what, what do you call those dolls? Babushka, you know, a, a doll within a doll. It was like a babushka business. Russian nesting dolls. Yeah, yeah. Exactly right. So small cap company, first first set of exterior. And then you kind of like in the in the language learning space, in the enterprise learning language space, in the literacy space with another brand called Lexia and not growing and investor investors are getting tired. You know, so you, it, you know, you kind of like you pull it down and you pull it down and you pull it down. And you're like, this is a hard one. And it was an interesting business because it was so obvious what to do and no one looked at it. And I also felt like when I got to the the smallest babushka, I'm like, oh, it's the little baby in the middle. No one saw the little baby. This is a weird analogy, but like, oh, it's we're like the most widely known brand in education, like 97% awareness in the United States. Why don't we do more consumer? And everyone's like, well, that's that that business is dead. Duolingo killed us. Babel killed us. And we're like, no, no, no. But of all the things we're working on, we should be focused on that. We don't have a mobile app. No, I get it. But like, that's a, that, those are things to do. It's the, the inherent advantage of this is that everyone knows us. We don't have to spend as much marketing dollars as anybody else. Start with that. And, and actually, people really like the product. They don't use it, but they love it. And it start. It was a weird one because you got to it fast. The strategic core thesis. Doing it took a long time. And it was actually weird that there was some fog around it where it wasn't really obvious to anyone that that was the thing. So for me, that was a fun one because it also meant that whatever we decided to do helped a lot of people. So learning a language means means a lot for someone outside of the United States. You you learn you learn English. I'm sure you know this from the work that you do. You know English. You're immediately you know you can work for Google as a director. There's certain tech companies, for instance, that once you know English, you can actually open up to another transformational level of the company. And in general, English is the lingua franca for business around the world. Mandarin's probably kind of number one with it. Number two with the bullet, um, you are helping people along the way. And that had kind of a dual advantage of both art and math. Like the math of it was awesome. Like, hey, we're going to make some money here. We can transform this business. And the heart of it is all along the way, you'd have customers, you know, thanking you for for helping them with their language efficacy. So it was kind of getting to the heart was the weird thing. It was fast, but it almost felt like it was too easy to get to that. 
So I have so many questions about this. My first one is this. You recognize this asset. We have massive awareness. We have major name recognition. That's a, that's an asset, like a building or anything else, right? It, it very, very expensive to duplicate, right? Yes. And yet the Duolingos or the Babbles that, that are currently owning the consumer space, what's your thought process on, okay, look at this huge asset we've got. Let's figure out how to leverage it. Two, are we going to go head to head with Duolingo? Are we going to create something alternative? Can you talk to me about those next steps? Like, this is the biggest asset we own. This is the thing we need to leverage. And, you know, Duolingo is winning at consumer at the moment or whatever, whatever that is. So what do we do instead? Or what what would that process like? Yeah. And in the book, I have like all these diagrams and frameworks. Some I sketched and they made them look better. But there's two. One is Michael Porter's frameworks. So Mark, Michael Porter, his strategic frameworks are are awesome. But, you know, inevitably, if you take down all the writing of Michael Porter, if, if, if people listening haven't read Michael Porter, they should. But the two by two matrix of life and everything. But on the left hand side, upper left, the X axis upper left is, is, is horizontal. And then the right is premium. And so you have to kind of make this decision. Am I going to be a horizontal or a vertical player? Am I going to be low cost or am I going to be premium? And that's kind of business. You don't want to be in the middle. Like there's no kind of kind of premium and low cost. You kind of have to like pick your lane. And so, you know, think about Apple. Apple is not a low cost leader. They're a premium leader. They're a revenue leader. They're not a unit share leader. Samsung and others beat them on unit share. And there's tons of examples. And in my case with Rosetta Stone, Babel was kind of a, you know, yeah, there, there was, they were actually kind of a tweener, but they were kind of premium-ish, but they were kind of fast flanking us because they're a paid subscription model. Duolingo was free. And so when you look at the space, you kind of figure out, okay, well, we're known to be the, the high-end brand. We're known to actually stand for efficacy without actually anyone opening the product. People assumed it was the best. So right off the bat, you're like, well, you're not going to go after a low cost strategy. You're not going to try to build a freemium product. And then we did a bunch of work to dial back, like who were all these personas? What were the all different customers? And so like first you're like, well, it feels like we're going to be premium and horizontal, like a lot of people in the United States and premium brand. Okay. Then we started mapping the perceived price versus the perceived value. And that's the other framework I like to do, because sometimes you, you want those aligned, but the perceived price for our product was really high and the perceived value was really high. And that was a key insight because a lot of people that build products, they put too much in a product that's never used. And sometimes they put too little and they don't align the expectations of the customer. I'm not talking about competitive analysis. I'm talking about the expectations of the customer. So for us, when we started mapping a premium position with, you know, perceived prices high, perceived values high, then that really starts making you think about what else would you do to that product that's different than everybody else. And so, for instance, we made a lifetime bundle. Like you could buy the product lifetime. And then we started putting 24 languages in it. No one ever used the 24 languages. Perceived that I was massive value. And then let's put some free tutoring in it. Now, very few people actually use it, but it was perceived to be really valuable. And we put more and more and more value into this product without a lot of marginal cost. So when people look at it and go, for $199, and we position it as a lifetime learning product. Wow, for $199, I can have this asset in my hand for life. And it just turns out there's a lot of people that want that kind of product. And so that's kind of the, once you kind of pick the lane, are you vertical, horizontal, are you premium, are you low cost? Then you start mapping down, okay, if I'm going to build a business around this, am I trying to build a business with what kind of levers, the perception of price and the perception of value? 
Well, it's funny. I, I remember buying Rosetta Stone Mandarin like a dozen years ago. It was like a couple of months before my trip to China. I had a, I had an employee who had grown up there who was going to be my guide, but I wanted to just at least have something. You know what I mean? I'm studying it hard. I have no idea where those CDs are. I don't own any computers that you can put CDs in, but I wish I had a lifetime learning to, to go back to it, right? Because I probably paid that much. You know, what's interesting about that, that I love on that equation. Well, I want to pause this. For people not familiar, can you explain the difference between a horizontal business and a vertical business? Yeah. So horizontal business, think about like a large addressable market. So in this example, we just use Rosetta Stone. Yep. You know, let's say 360 million or so Americans. That'd be like a, a product that would actually satisfy majority of Americans versus a more vertical product that would be, no, I'm going to go after conservatives between conservative politically minded people between the ages of 35 and 55 men. That would be a vertical play. Yeah. Great. So, I mean, I think what I love about your equation so much is this, this idea of how can you, I'm going to put it in my own words and you correct me. Okay. Okay. But it's what I feel like you're saying is how can we make the value to price ratio completely out of whack in the customer's favor as far as their perception yep. without breaking the bank for us? That's is right. that fair? That's how right. would you say that better? That's right. No, I think that's right. And I think the, I think too many people are too, there's, there's a bottoms up approach to pricing that I think need, like, for example, physical goods, you need a bill of materials. You need to understand your bill of materials. The bill of materials of a, a CPG product, you know, I'm making like a can of soap or something. Perception of that product could be much higher than that. You think about luxury beverages, you know, the bill of materials on those products are really small. You know, think about water. What's inside water? Water's water, but it's the packaging around it and the value you introduce to it. Think about liquid depth. What is that? It's like, it's a cool name and a brand on kind of cold artesian water. I mean, I don't know what their bill of materials are, but I'm sure it's like an 80% margin kind of product. That's what I mean is you're tying together the perception of the price to the value and designing a product around that. Now, if you're trying to build something that is really, really low cost and perception of the price is really low, well, you better be really good at price management. And then a lot of people who are good at that, I think about like Costco, Costco's in the business of selling memberships. They're not in the, the business of selling, uh, making margin on their products. So they've done a really, really good job of mass, you know, getting scale into their, their, their facility and negotiating the lowest price so they get their membership every year. Um, so I think the way you articulate it was better than I did is making sure that you know where your spot is. Too many people, when they do this analysis, when I mean spot is, they focus on way too many customers, way too many personas, and they don't really understand what they're trying to solve for. And the back of the bowling pin of customers, I wish I had 100% market share of the United States, 100% market share of China. Everyone always tries to solve for the maximum product adoption before they actually solve for the first pin. And so the last thing I would say to this is what you said was correct, mapping value, the perception of price and value, but also to what customer and the way in which you approach that. If you get your strategy right, your value proposition right to the right customer, you're in a good spot. No one does that. Most businesses I walk into, they're like, I'm doing lots of stuff. Things feel really good. It worked well on Excel spreadsheet. They haven't thought through any of this stuff. And half of it's dialing it back and saying, okay, first principles, who are we going after? What's the business strategy? How is this product priced and positioned? Who's the customer? Figuring all that out gets you to that answer. And eventually you can always build a bigger business from that, but you can't start with building a big business until you figure out the spot. It is interesting how, as you're saying that, I'm thinking like, it's pretty hard to map out a journey if you don't have some GPS on where you are currently. 
right? Totally. It's and in focus. Yeah. Talk to me about focus. I think the, you know, I'm a product manager by training. And so I, I come at everything with a software product manager. And so product management is always trying to map the unmet needs, or I call pain, the consumer pain to a gain. And through that journey, you always start with the end in mind. You know, Amazon's famous for writing the press release before they launch a product. Other companies build actually a box. They have actually, they build like a consumer products good box. I actually like doing the press release myself. I always start out with in two years, this is what the product's going to be good at. This is what it's going to feel like. And this is going to have, it's going to be differentiated to this audience. So I always step back from that and go, okay, I have zero, you know, I have zero. How do I become this, this full solution? I'm constantly looking at feasibility, desirability, and the cost. And that's a level of focus. And once you decide what your focus is, I want to be the most performant product. I'm going to be the easiest to use product. I'm going to be the fastest product, whatever it is. Then you can start mapping in all these different trade-offs. Most products that don't do well do not have a point of view. Most businesses that don't do well don't have a point of view. They go to who am I going after? What's the plan? What's the perception of product and price? And then, it, then it's about prioritization of how do you get there. And it kind of flows. By the time you get to a spreadsheet, like I'm going to launch this feature, implement this, do that, it pretty much happens quickly. So that's what I mean by focus. Too many businesses don't have the focus that's required to be successful. And in that, question, in that equation, is it like being honest about the feasibility that we can create that much desirability at that cost? What's the, th what's the feasibility in that equation? Feasibility is, do I have the ability to execute on that? You know, like if I'm... If I'm Solar City, do I have the ability to create kind of a mass market solar panel? Do I have the hardware specs, the patents, all that kind of stuff? The desirability is, you know, cost savings, look and feel, maybe the tiles look awesome. And then do I have the confidence that it actually can ship? It's completely different. That's resourcing. And so, you know, that's how I think about that. Yeah. Okay. Listen, you get interviewed a lot. What's a question you don't get asked enough? Or what's what's a soapbox item? What do you want to talk about? Oh, my gosh. What, a, what an interesting question. I, I I've been asked some weird, weird things lately, like what's my favorite, you know, music, uh, you know, what's my, you know, hidden, what I don't know you, how you'd frame it. Like what's my guilty pleasure for a song? I don't know. I think from a soapbox thing, I would say this is, I think a lot of people have asked me recently how to build my brand. And this, this comes up a lot. And the, the, there's a meme, I'm sure you've seen it, about the, the CEO that was crying on LinkedIn because he laid off a lot of people. And there's this kind of whole culture of building a brand and, cultivating your brand. And I'm not opposed to that, but I think my soapbox item would be, I wish people would stop focusing so much about the perceptions of others on yourself and just kind of own who you are and align around that and be true to that. And, you know, I, oh, I've gone through some life journeys and some, some difficulties personally, but I always kind of feel like I need to be uncompromisingly true to what I want to do. Kind of sounds like a, a nursery rhyme or something. And my soapbox item is I, it took a while to get there. I think people look at you and I and others in business and think, oh, these people have it all figured out. I'm 52. It took a while to get there. And so my soapbox item is just mellow out. If you're young and starting out, you don't, you shouldn't have it figured out. Do things that you're good at and don't compromise on those things, but don't worry so much about the perception of others. And so 
you know, obviously I'm kind of in a position where I could do that now. But when I was younger, I was so wrapped around the axle around that. So I don't know if that's answering your question, but that's my soapbox item is there's too much focus on the perception of others on yourself. And don't be posting stuff on LinkedIn with you crying. Just, you know, maybe talk to a friend about that. But, you know, that that's a narcissistic, sociopathic thing to do. Don't worry so much about what other people think. Make the hard decisions and, and give yourself a break. You know, that's an interesting thing for me to think about because I think my own, my own insecurities, especially being a young guy, you know, as a 28 year old CEO of my little private equity fund, mm -hmm. right? I literally went to a meeting and a guy asked if my dad was coming. I was like, no, actually, I'm actually, I'm the CEO. Like yeah. literally. Yeah. And he wasn't like being rude. Right. Like he just actually asked. Yeah. 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 Okay. <laughs> no, I literally said, no, actually, I'm the CEO. Okay. <laughs> but, 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 uh. I, I think about like, there are so many, there are so many things in life telling us that we're not enough, right? And you look at the curated version of someone that can be on social media, of like the great trips or the, you know, the so-and-so, just all the things that typically show up on social media. And so there can be almost a, this competitive sack. And there's like, there's such a temptation for me, at least to like put up this cardboard cutout version of myself that I wish people believed in. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, and, and so one way is this show is actually really helpful to me is like, you look at like writing a book or speaking or things like this, like it, there are a lot of business opportunities that come from having this show. Like I've had investors, I've had mm -hmm. clients, I have business partners and just like straight out friends, you know, yeah. I get, I got, you know, I get invited to cool parties at Forbes in New York that I wasn't otherwise going to get invited to or whatever. Right. Yeah. And, and there can be such a temptation for me and I think for others to like, to, to, uh, want to be positioned as this well thought of person who's accomplished all these things. And one of the advantages for the, on the show is that I'm not running a podcast about Jess's wisdom, right? Yeah. I just get to, I just get to be the, I get, I just get to be curious and learn from everybody else, you know? But my question for you is navigating this line of like, there are definitely business advantages to people knowing who you are and, and having a high opinion of your skill set. And then that easily gets corrupted into self-focus, selfishness, mm -hmm. you know, treating other people like they're just your audience instead of real people. Mm -hmm. Can you talk at all about navigating the, the difference there? Yeah. By the way, I think you get that kind of attention and those doors open because you are very transparent about who you are. So you're just attracting people that want to be around that. So if you weren't that way, if you're more like, I don't know, the word douchey or shallow, you wouldn't be getting those opportunities. So again, it kind of goes back to being un uncompromising about who you are. Yeah, the arrogance versus confidence question. Yeah, I think... Yeah. When I was younger, for instance, I was massively, I was, when I was at Real Networks, I was the product manager for this product called The Real Player. And it was like, I don't know what it would be equivalent to, a product manager for Twitter 1.0 or Facebook, like early days, you know, building a product, working 90 hours a week, very difficult environment. And it, I had a bunch of successes and I thought I was like, you know, the man. And I think over time, what you realize is people are more attracted to confidence than arrogance in that most of the time, if I feel like I'm around people that are arrogant, you know, I'm at the point where I just don't want to work with them, don't want to talk to them and just, you know, move on with the, from the conversation. I think that is a learn through lessons. And I also think how you're brought up is, is important. Your environment, you know, my grandfather was a lumberjack. I was brought up in a family where it really wasn't, I don't, you're smiling because you, you may relate. It was not really looked favorably upon to talk about yourself or your accomplishments. And it was really about, um, 
you know, chopping your own wood versus hiring someone to do it for you. And so it's kind of acts through deeds versus words. And that was kind of a behavioral thing. And so every time I feel like I've gotten knocked down or I feel like I'm in a situation where I've, I've moved from confidence to arrogance, there's always something in my, my childhood or upbringing that kind of brings me back to kind of what's the right thing to do. It's a long winded way saying that most people are attracted to confidence, not arrogance. And arrogance in our society is rewarded we all know that, but it probably doesn't feel good if that person was really honest with themselves. You know, you got to be kind. You can be confident and kind. Most arrogant people aren't very kind. And this is a long way away saying, I think people are really attracted to the confidence aspect. Arrogance is short-lived. I'm going to have to think about this, but I like it because what it makes me think about is I, uh, when I get anxious about something, I, I have like these few ways to like do emotional hijacking on myself. Okay. To get in a good mindset. So like, it can be either like going for funny videos until I'm actually laughing. So I like hmm. get rid of it. Or sometimes I watch these like motivational videos until I, until I feel like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm stoked to take on this challenge instead of intimidated by it. So Today I was listening to the motivational one and there's some, one of them is just a bunch of quotes from the, like the last dance documentary of Michael Jordan and, oh, yeah. and, or some other Michael Jordan ones. And there's this one video where it's just a, it's just a compilation of all these different interviews asking Michael Jordan, is he scared and what does he fear? And like people apparently love asking him that question, but his, his answer is really great over and he says like, of course I was anxious going into games, but I wasn't afraid because I put in the work and I was able to be confident in my skills because I put in the work. Mm -hmm. And it was interesting because it didn't come across like an MMA fighter was just like boisterous arrogance mm -hmm. over the topness. It was it was more of a like just a genuine statement of fact for him. Mm -hmm. It wasn't it wasn't from a place of arrogance. And what's interesting is it was extremely calming to me to say like, hey, maybe I haven't put in the work yet. And that's why I'm feeling some anxiety about this next business obstacle we're up against. Mm -hmm. But also made me feel like, oh, but I could just put in the work. I could just, I could just pay the price and put in the work and then have confidence in my skill set. And I wouldn't have to have fear or anxiety. I could, I could be in a place of faith of going like, I've, I paid my dues. I like, I've got the right skill set for this. And it obviously doesn't guarantee the future, but like that idea of confidence versus arrogance, it really resonated with me when you were saying it that way, because for me, the arrogance is this like cardboard cutout version. It's like saying these things about myself that I wish were true. Right. And then hopefully trying to get other people to believe it where the confidence thing is kind of like knocking over the cardboard and being honest about the things that I haven't built the skill set at, but also being honest about the things I have built the skill set at. And just like, just, it sounds cliche coming out of my mouth, but like just being the real me instead of trying to be like the me on display. I don't know if that makes any sense. It, it makes a ton of sense. And also having the confidence to actually admit that and then re get people to rally around areas in which you need help. You know, for example, if someone sends me like a 50 page something, a document, I mean, I can whip through that quickly because I'm like diagnosis dyslexic. I mean, I go through it quickly and I can find all the flaws and I'm a great art critic. You send me a spreadsheet, I'll find that one thing that's a flaw. But if you ask me to create something that's perfect, like grammar is a problem for me, I want to fail. And I tell everyone, you know, look, I'm verbose. I generate tons of ideas. I'm really good at articulating what I want. I can pick it every, you know, but there's a whole basket of stuff I'm not good at. I need a couple of folks that are good at those things to help me and let's be partners in it. I think there's a confidence in knowing what you're good at or what you're not good at, because sometimes it's the answer is putting in the work to your point. Sometimes the answer is I'm not going to put in the work because that's not what I'm good at and I don't want to do it. 
Well, listen, Michael Jordan didn't make a lot of money playing baseball, right? No, he did not. And so if he was if he was optimizing for personal joy, he should play baseball because that's what he and his dad talked about growing up. Yes. And if he is optimizing for dollars, he should not play baseball, mm-hmm. right? So if some of us are optimizing for dollars, why don't we figure out what our baseball is and what our basketball is and double down on our basketball? Right? Well, that, that's, well, that's the thing that everyone talks about. Do you optimize for passion? Do you optimize for competency, what you're good at? You know, I don't think life's modal, you know, like I've always, like my favorite quote is Groucho Marx's, oh, is it a Groucho Marx? Groucho Marx is like, hey, some say that you, you can't be, if you're rich, you have to be unhappy, but can't something be worked out where you can be moderately wealthy and just moody? And, and it was like, you know, for me, it's kind of like, I view kind of like knobs and like, you know. Sure. You know, so it's, you don't have to be so modal, but yeah, I, I'm not one for like completely focusing on your passion as your vocation. Let me, let me give you a different example. Okay. okay. So first, I thought it was a nice compliment you gave me about the show. I will say that I consistently have to tamp down the on display, Jess. Because I read a lot of books and I've interviewed a lot of people and I've tried to do some stuff myself. Yeah. As soon as yes is talking about something, like I immediately think of like, oh, I've done that too. In fact, I'm good at that. And I want to tell that story. Or it's like, oh, I know three stories from other books I sh- that, that are exactly that. And then I want to be the important guy who tells the story. And I've had to like overcome that about myself on the show of like, people aren't tuning in to listen to Jess. People are tuning in to listen to the guest. And in fact, it's a much bigger benefit to me to to find out something else I'm curious about instead of try to let everybody know that I'm smart and I know stuff too. Okay. That's actually not my perception of what you do. My perception, I don't know, maybe this is a therapy session, but my perception is what you do is you're trying to relate and enhance what interviewee is going through or trying to articulate and enhance. I don't, I don't view it as you trying to do one up and shit. I am actively trying to cultivate that because I do think that there are times that I'm genuinely being a benefit to the listener to give an example or to, to try to augment it. But I also have these temptations to try and get the spotlight back on me. And that's, that's something that I work to actively tamp down. But, you know, it's, it's funny, like you, we all work on it. Like one of my big things, and I don't know if this is helpful for anyone listening is, and, and I think it's a little bit of what you're saying is kind of, I guess it's appropriate presence, you know, communication style based on audience. And I struggle, I've always struggled with this because I, I talk the same way, whether it's the board of directors, investor, employees, whatever. And I just, it's, it's unadulterated me. And I, I've spent a lot of time with a lot of mentors who've heard me live mentoring me, talking to me about how I need to tamp this down. I still get feedback. I had a performance review this morning and there was a little bit of that still left. Like Matt's a little colloquial, maybe not in the right moment. Like when you're talking about like dollars, you know, or hitting a budget. And for me, it's always a struggle. But at the end of the day, as long as you're aware of it and as long as you're cognizant about it and working on it without completely turning it off, it's fine. I always think about like turning it down 10%. You know, don't don't try to turn something down 50%. So I would just, my advice to you is if you feel like that's an issue, just maybe in your head, turn it down 10% and see what happens. Because I think you lose something. I think, I think the reason why people listen is because you're doing that. Well, I love it. And the question that I ask myself is, am I telling this story for me or for them? And if I'm telling a story for them, then I should tell it. If I'm telling a story for me, I should probably save it. Maybe, maybe. Okay, we're way over time, yeah. but I want to ask one more question. Okay. Thinking about all of this in context of being a CEO of a public company or being a CEO of a fast-growing startup and these these things you've done in your experience, how do you apply it there? How do I apply what? Sorry. This idea of appropriate presence. Ah, I don't think I've mastered it. I think for me, it's... 
I think with it, let's let's think about different stakeholders. If you're talking about a board, public or private, I think you know you de- you definitely have to put more belt and suspenders and wingtips on. Um, and I whatever pronoun you you associate yourself with, but you know much more buttoned up in those types of settings because like ten percent humor is great, ninety percent humor is not great. And so I think with a board, something's very serious with investors. That's fun. I think for your employee base and your team, more transparency, more more servant leadership, more thank yous, more empathy, and definitely turn the knob up more there. As long as it's authentic, if people can smell an authentic leadership. And for me, it's a no, you know, with the board, you don't want the board to know that you're crying when you lay off people. You can say it was very difficult to do that, but don't cry. Flip side is you could probably cry in front of your employees and get emotional. And so it's having the judgment. And for me, it's it is what I'm doing in that situation, helpful or hurtful to the mission and where I'm going. If it's helpful and it's authentic, I will do it. If it's not, then I won't do it. Being a goofball in front of your board, is that helpful? And Even if it's fact, authentic. It, <laughs> it's not getting us to the mission. So it has to be, you have to drive to the North Star of the mission and it has to be helpful. And if you're like doing something, we're like, I've offended, I've offended so many board members, but I had, I made this joke about that I'm Welsh. And I said, you know, Welsh, you know, we're like, well, I'm Welsh German. Welsh, you know, short hands, deep pockets. And then someone on the board was offended. They're Irish. And they're like, well, we're like kissing cousins to the Welsh. I'm like, oh, that was offensive to that person. And I was like, oh, I hadn't thought through that. It was just something I thought was funny. But, you know, dial it back. Was that helpful? No. And it wasn't getting me to where I needed to go in terms of driving that point home for the mission of business. So I think that's just a gut check. And startups, I don't, I think startups, there's an, anyone that's listening is running a startup. I think there's a general consensus that you can be more colloquial, more, more loose in lots of different ways. I don't think that's true. I think, you know, at the end of the day, the CEO is not a mouthpiece for their own id and superego. They're really there to support their, all their stakeholders and really enable their team to be successful. So if, again, if it's not helpful and not really, you know, driving towards the mission of the business, then don't do it, even if it feels good to do it. So there's lots of examples like that. And certainly when stock prices go up and revenue goes up, everyone's like, oh, that's just crazy, Adam, you know, let Adam do what he needs to do. Well, like Warren Buffett said, when the tide goes out, only then do you know who's swimming naked. So, you know, then Adam doesn't look so good when the revenues are going down. So helpful and it's driving the mission of the business. I, I love that mission first criteria to be thinking. Mission first. That's great. Yeah. So let's do this. You've been so generous with your time today. Why don't you tell people the best place to get the book? Tell Let's tell people where to find your website online. And uh, and also let's do the elevator pitch for the book. How do you describe the book? You know, CEO or aspiring entrepreneur, they're thinking about your book versus another one. What what do you think they might benefit from it? Yeah. And unlock. And I, gotta, I sound like, I feel like I'm going to do that, that ad voice. Unlock five questions. To unleash your company's hidden power. This is really the most unique business book because it allows really any business leader and executive to determine if their business can be a market leader with just five questions. And that's kind of the pitch. It's like your FICO score for your business. And you can find it on Amazon or any really, any place really, Barnes and Noble, all, lots of different places, Hudson News. And then the best place to find me is startupwhisperer.com. I love it. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me. Okay. Bye, everyone.